You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll hear how an urban agriculture and environmental justice organization has been affected by and is responding to the extreme drought. We're growing our own food um, in southeast San Francisco, and, and we've been distributing food to folks that need it affected by COVID. Thinking about how this drought or how this water shortage is just another obstacle. As the drought gets worse, the water gets more expensive. We're not making money <laughs> in any way, right? So like really thinking about what are the things we have to do to, to restore our balance with the earth so that you know we have yeah these water cycles that we're used to, to be able to, you know, have flourishing thriving farms. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Before we get started, at the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate, or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use, or leave us a review. It really does help, so thanks. Just off of Geneva Avenue at Crocker Amazon Park in the Excelsior, six acres of formerly underutilized land owned by the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission have been turned into an urban farm. But the organization that runs it, Poder, grows more than produce. Hummingbird Farm provides organic food as well as medicinal plants and serves as a community and education hub. I talked with one of the organization's leaders about this program and the effects of California's exceptional drought conditions. Hi, my name is Tere Almaguer. I am an environmental justice organizer with Poder, people organizing to demand environmental and economic rights in San Francisco. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So for those of us who don't really see um, outside the city much, see the reservoirs dipping down, especially with lockdown, a lot of us might not have been leaving town that much. Um, it might not be hitting home yet that there is an extreme drought, but Poder runs an urban farm. What signs did you see and when of the coming effects of this drought? So we ha- opened up a community farm in November of 2017. Um, and unfortunately, our opening date was supposed to be in September, but due to the wildfires, um, we had to postpone our opening. Um, and mm. so since the beginning, we have been, ex- you know, feeling and experiencing the, the wildfires and, and, and the drought. We have a, a huge willow in the middle of our farm, a uh, native willow, a white willow, that's um, an indicator of water. Um, and so we know that in that area, we tend to have water. We also have an area that's like a temporary wetland. But this year, after three years of being at the farm, we noticed that a lot of the um, different plants that you know make an appearance in, in early April didn't come out till late May. Um, mm. For example, the chrysanthemum, which is a beautiful yellow flower um, that usually just turns the whole farm yellow around early April. It wasn't in full bloom until mid-May. And usually maybe it grows to be about, I don't know, four feet tall. Um, And it it was like half the size. 
And so to us, those were indicators of lack of, of rain and water. Um, also, uh, about two and a half years ago, we introduced the amaranth to our farm, which is an ancestral food. Um, ever since we planted it the first time, it's come back very uh, strong. And usually by early May, mid-April. And this year, we're just barely getting um, little sprouts of it. And so I think these are all indicators that, you know, all our seeds are, are, are struggling. They want more water. And then we're also in a situation where we don't want to oversaturate with water and, and spend more water than we should do irrigation because we are in the super drought. We, um, right. we got a notice from the um, SFPUC whose land we are, are currently stewarding at the farm, you know, asking for reduction in, in water usage. So we've installed irrigation drip. And, you know, are being very conscientious about that. Um, yeah. Could you talk more about that? Because one of the educational aspects of the farm, as I understand it, is to teach methods of water conservation. What kinds of irrigation techniques did you use prior to getting this notice? And, and when did you make the switch to drip irrigation? So we just we started drip irrigation last year. Um, like I said, we were, we're just three years old. And mm-hmm. so uh, and one of our principles was to start slow and, and spread out in a slow way, <laughs> not picking <laughs> on more than we could handle. Um, yeah. But I think last year we really wanted to just make it easier. We were hand watering, which is taking about four to five hours <laughs> multiple times. Wow. Um, yeah, that wasn't very, very um, efficient. We are a community organization group that worked with the Urban Campesi Next program to build, create, design this community farm for, for community healing, to grow our own food, to grow our own medicine, to have a community space, um, and to really connect to our ancestors. Um, many of our parents and grandparents were farm workers, um, mm-hmm. but most of us are you know, born and raised in, in the urban concrete jungles of San Francisco. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so you know, it's, been, it's been a learning curve, but it's been a beautiful one, especially in these times and so I think part of, of that has been that everything that we do at the farm is kind of like an educational process. And so it's not like, oh, we're just going to hire and contract someone to come and build an irrigation. Yeah. It's like, you know, going and visiting with ally uh, partners and, and organizations and farms to see how they do it, to see what's the best way to do it. And then the rainfall has been different every year. So um we really feel the super drought. This is our third year and it was drastically different, like the patterns of what's coming up and how um, we're drastically different this year. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about growing ancestral foods and and medicine at this garden? Is there, or sorry, at this farm? Um, I'm wondering if there's an emotional aspect to seeing the impacts of the drought play out like this, especially when there's such important crops that you're growing. Um, yes. So uh, just as you know, we um, uh, our Urban Campesinex program are really uh, youth that have been involved with Poder and organizing for environmental and economic justice um, in the city. And so one of the things that we see or that we saw was that, you know, being um, in the mission, which was zone light industrial, being in southeast San Francisco, which is where we have, you know, the most burden of pollution, where San Francisco's planning department placed most of the um, toxics of the city where, where working class communities of color lived, where we have the only 
two freeways, we have really a lot of health disparities. Yeah. And so acknowledging that a lot of our grandparents live to be over 100 and then our parents who come to this country um, are sick at 40, 50, taking diabetes shots, taking all these pills, mm. you know, like um, I think one of the aha moments we had in visiting a farm that's part of an ally organization, Los Jardines Institute in New Mexico, was that we needed to reconnect to land. We needed to steward land to rebuild our community health, right? That 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 was one of the key links to why, you know, our parents are getting sick, we're getting sick, yet, you know, um, in the older generations, they were a lot stronger and a lot healthier, even if they were considered a lot poorer. The youth wrote up a manifesto called Flavors of the Heart or Sabor para el Corazón, wanting to, to reclaim this land to grow food, to connect to like plant medicine, to connect to plants that are a lot of times our abuelitas gave us when we had tummy aches or, mm. you know, when we had ear infections. And so um, from that manifesto started our, our organizing campaign to reclaim this land, connected to then Supervisor John Avalos, who connected us to the SFPUC, who had passed an ordinance to prioritize growing food in their excess areas. The SFPUC is the owner of this six-acre lot that we're now on. And then we engaged in about four years of community engagement to make sure that we were going to build a farm that reflected the needs and wants of the community around. We did door knocking, we interviewed elders, we did focus groups with schools and community organizations. And so I think a big part of growing ancestral foods was is meeting that need of the Excelsior where we're at has the highest number of, um, of immigrant families and kind of like that wanting to be more connected to home, right? Some of the things that we've grown are our are, are meat milpa, milpex, um, which is our corns and beans and squash, which, which right now are in the ground. Um, also tomatoes and cilantro and, and you know, a lot of the foods for our salsas. We've had community events with Filip Filip Filipino communities who have gifted us different, like, uh, trees from the Philippines. I'm forgetting the name mm. right now. Um, also, we planted like bok choy with some of the youth that have come from the different middle schools that have Chinese and uh, ancestry. And so really working at like figuring out how to connect um, for youth to connect to, to the land in that way. Right. And and not just have food, you know, from a supermarket perspective. Also, you know, the importance of growing our food, giving the climate chaos that we're in. Right. Like. We yeah. have all this excess land in the city. I mean, it's not that much, but the land that we do have, like how do we grow more um, food so we're not totally dependent on, you know, the fossil fuel economy to like ship it all in, you know, yeah. from Chile or, or wherever, or even, you know, the Central Valley. or And then also partnering with different like farmers in, in Sonoma, in, in different parts of California who are supporting us. Like there's a woman's farmers and leadership in Sonoma County that grow all these starters for us as they grow their own starters for their farms. They, you know, donate eight to 900 starters for us yearly. Right. And that's, oh, that's cool. amazing. Um, and so I think one of the most beautiful things I've seen during this pandemic is, 
is kind of like the camaraderie and allyship between farmers and really wanting mm. to help and support each other. We're in collaboration with Alamany Farms and, and Urban Sprouts. For uh, We formed the Sun Network, the Stewards of Urban Nutrition Network, and we're working together to grow more food in San Francisco, grow more leadership. So we're growing our own food um, in Southeast San Francisco, and, and we've been distributing food to folks that need it affected by COVID. Um, and so I think all these things kind of are beautiful and growing and and then you know thinking about how this drought or how this um, water shortage is just you know another obstacle in, in making this happen is, is is really hard because you know it's like we, we, we're still paying for water and, and as the drought gets worse the water gets more expensive and right. you know we're not we're not making money <laughs> in any way right so like really thinking about what are the things we have to do to to restore our balance with the earth so that you know we have we have these these cycles that we're used to of um yeah these water cycles that we're used to 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 be able to you know have flourishing thriving farms mm-hmm. so I think it's all interconnected right and so I, and and because of that like a lot of our education is also around like you know climate climate um climate change and and what are the things we could do locally to make a difference. Um, we're a part of the Climate Justice Alliance. That's a national network. We've been able to go to Puerto Rico and support farmers out there after after Hurricane Maria. Hmm. We've been able to come and, and help us clear some of our farmlands and, and teach us a bunch as you know, um, farmers with a lot more experience. And so I think there's just a lot of opportunity around the world and around the country to to be able to be supportive of each other and and really come up with solutions as to like how to work through this drought together, right? Yeah. But I don't think yeah we we have a lot of times you know the government or, or or different entities with power really want to listen to farmers, but as folks that are the most connected, I think it's really important that they start doing that. I'm speaking with Tere Almaguer, an environmental justice organizer with Poder. One of the things I wanted to bring up is that the hummingbird farm, the poder farm that um, we've been talking about, the city's website says it provides hundreds of pounds of organic fruits and vegetables each season. I'm wondering what kind of produce it yields, and, and can you talk about whether that has varied year to year and whether that has been impacted by drought conditions? So um, we uh, are an open farm. We don't have any fences. And so we purposely wanted to have an open farm because one of the obstacles we saw for our community and in all the community garden programs in San Francisco was that you had to get on a list. You had to wait for years. Mm, you had to sign exclusive. up online. Um, and it wasn't very accessible, right? Yeah. So a lot of the produce that we grow, we never, we don't see. <laughs> People tell us to take it. Um, and yeah. so I think, you know, that was something that was really hard to get through the first year. But, you know, mm. once you know that, like, you know, if someone comes and takes it, it's because they need it. It feels good to be able to, to have that resource for the community, right? And so uh, some of the things that we've grown are squash, cucumbers, uh, tomatoes, corn, um, beans. We just finished a, a really good fava bean um, season and we were able to learn how to make all kinds of nutritious and delicious things with fava beans. Mm. We grow a lot of flowers. One of the ancestral flowers that we grow is the acoco sochil, 
which is called the dahlia, but it's it's a Mexican flower and its original name is the Acocosochil. And some mm-hmm. of the things we've learned is that the roots, which taste kind of like the floral jicama, are, are like insulin regulators. It's a way for you what? to like, um, not get diabetes, right? And so these are oh, cool. things that we we work with and talk to with our with our um, all the folks that come visit the farm. We have uh, this summer multiple schools and, and community youth groups that come. We have an apprenticeship program with with youth in the urban campesinics. Um, we have a lot of chamomile, a lot of calendula. So we do like a lot of like tea blends. We have our huge mm. white willow is the original aspirin. And so um, this is, you know, some of our members at Poder who have had migraines, you know, we make a tincture and they say that it's totally supported them in, in getting rid of their migraines. We have a whole medicinal aspect of the farm. Something that's become kind of like an annual celebration is our amaranth harvest. And so we harvest our amaranth and we collect the seeds. Um, and that's been beautiful. We also grew a lot of chia. Hmm. Um, what else do we have? We have a lot of eggplant. Those don't really, I don't really get to see those, but those, they're, they grow really beautifully. Um, <laughs> we grow our, mar- we grow marigolds for our Dia de los Muertos event. Um, and so, I mean, the land is so abundant, you know? We have elderberries like in full bloom right now, or the flower, it's about to give us a bunch of berries. Um, the land is very, very abundant, right? And we've been able to like really transform the soil in the ground because when we first got there, it was like clay or sandy and, and just working it, the roots working it, adding the compost, giving that human labor to turn it, watering it. I mean, it's such a difference from like what we first got when we got there. And now yeah. seeing like all the richness of all the little animals in there, the little um, worms and, and little insects and... And like um, the the gopher snakes and, you know, it's, it's the amount of uh, birds we have. We have like hundreds of birds there. So it's like a little bird symphony when you're there. Oh, you visit. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like I, I think if you create the habitat, if you put the labor in, like uh, the earth gives you abundance, you know. So so it's been it's been really good. And, and we've been able to harvest a lot of different things. We do Skillshares or workshops. That's one of our principles um, is that everything needs to be something that community could learn and take home. And so one of my friends, um, Nancy Hernandez, she did a workshop last February, right before the pandemic on like ancestral power seeds. And um, some of the histories that we learned were, were, were pretty intense. Like um, when the Spaniards first came to Mexico, um, amaranth and chia and hemp were outlawed. Like if you grew them, you would get mm-hmm. killed, right? Um, and then we were like, why, right? And then we started making kind of like these power bars with them. They are so full and packed of nutrition. I mean, some of our um, ancestral runners would use them to like run long distances and just eat them and be able to be powered by them, right? And so to be able to be growing them, um, knowing that, you know, ancestrally, not that many generations ago, we couldn't, like it was forbidden. Um, and then just to see how they like grow like you plant them once and then they're like there for forever, right? We're like, wow, there's mm-hmm. a renegade amaranth everywhere, right? Like not just <laughs> in the growing area has been very empowering. We bought like power bars and then we made our own. And then we did a comparison of like the sugars and like the, the mm-hmm. and it's so, it's so interesting how like, you know, we're so trustful of stores, but really what we're sold is like not, 
the best for our health, right? And and we know and yeah. we know this, right? So, with same thing with salves, like we've been making chamomile and and calendula salves, which are so good for like inflammation, um, muscle pain, just skin, like just makes your skin feel all good. We just had a Heal the Hood event, in which we partnered with the Vegan Hood Chefs and Cat Fitness and the Latino Task Force, and we were able to make uh, calendula bars with with flowers that were grown at the farm we dried them we oiled them and people got to take these calendula bars home and like you know give their skin some love and so i think you know when i was talking to my mom like when they were out in the rancho or the area like you had to make all your stuff there was no walgreens right right um and you know i think it really speaks to you know what i said at the beginning you know like we come and we are trustful that like we're going to be healthier because we're in a more progressive country and you know and and it's not true like we need to go back to to those um making our product growing our food and and eating that and and really think about like how we're um really like you know farm to table right and it's interesting because you know it was outlawed but then now whole foods gets to sell it for us to us for really expensive. right of course <laughs> um, so, you know let's cut out the whole foods and let's just grow it ourselves and that's you know that's what we're working on Forget about the corporate middleman. (laughs) Well, actually, so I want to go back to the topic of drought a little bit and talk about how the methods that um, Poder is using, how they compare to industrial agriculture in terms of water use and other resource use, because I imagine that it's probably more efficient. So, so you know, we believe in, in 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 reflecting the diversity of Mother Earth, reflecting the diversity of the community, right? And you know, big industrial farming does a lot of monocropping, and so I think that's very draining to um, to all the lands. Um, for us, you know, some of the things that we're doing that you know our ancestors have done. Um, Sochil um, Flores, who's our farm manager. <clears throat> is an amazing farm manager. It has been also kind of sharing a lot of their knowledge that they grew up farming and then they also um, studied restoration and, and agriculture at UC Santa Cruz. We've been doing rotations of crops, right? So we'll grow, we, we won't grow the milpa in the same place. We cover crop almost everything during the winter. Um, and that, I mean, after you take out the cover crop and you feel the soil, you see the richness of, of all the nitrogen that the beans and the different kind of cover crops um, give back to the land. Mm. We are in the process of wetland restoration. And so um, we're working with a group of young folks through a person that we connected to, Stephen Daka, at Higher Ability. And we're just in the beginning processes, but like really working to expose youth to like what it, it, it means to, to restore habitat, right? to be able to contain, to create spaces to contain water when we do get it. Um, So it just doesn't run off into the sewer and into the ocean, right? Because I think that's what's hard about living in a concrete jungle is that the land is used to getting water and being able to hold and retain it within the land and within Mm -hmm. the different kind of like, you know, wetlands and and different things that um, exist, right? So we do have a temporary wetland and we are in the process of doing wetland restoration and that would help kind of like by planting certain natives um, help restore spaces to hold that water versus just letting it run off into the sewer. Um, what is a temporary wetland? Did that exist just naturally before the farm was established? Yes. Or what is temporary? Uh, mean so a temporary wetland is an area where you see kind of like a dip and where like water naturally holds. 
the, some indicators are like specific plants like rushes um and so mm-hmm. uh, and they just create habitat for for like frogs and like certain species that like want to live in kind of like those more marshy areas um and it's temporary because we do have a mediterranean climate where we get rain mm-hmm. and then we don't get rain you know right um as we've so, discussed <laughs> so those are those you know these are things that i have been learning you know as an adult and, and i'm very grateful to be learning but you know that we all should know because we all should be knowledgeable about the lands we live on and 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 how to be better stewards right of the lands that we live on and you know with that i just also i should have started out with this and i did it but just you know honoring the Ramatashaloni is the original peoples of, of San Francisco and the land. And, and so we really want to base, we really like to base all our, um, our actions on, on honoring the, the Ohlone and then also working on restoring native habitat of San Francisco, right? So right before we opened the farm, a year before we opened the farm, we worked with Ledge to collect seed um, because that area where we're at is a native area site part of the natural area site of San Francisco. And so we were able to collect seed and propagate about a thousand native plants that were planted Mm. um, during the opening of the farm. And so we have uh, the most bunch grasses, native bunch grasses in the city. It's the area that looks the most like what San Francisco looked like before colonization. And so one of the most important things about those grasses is that their roots are like up to 40 feet deep, like between 30 and 40 feet deep, right? And so wow. you, all you see are like the the grasses that were brought over um, by the Spaniards for feed, right? Like the the, the what they um, yeah the European grasses, but the mm-hmm. bunch grasses they they have really deep roots. And what I've been learning is that these deep roots are the highest carbon sequestrators because of those roots, right? So they sequester huh. the most carbon. And so we're really looking into creating more education programming around. You know, how are we um, helping uh, to be conscious of, with all the folks that go to the fa- the park and the farm? Because we're right next to Crocker Amazon Park. On mm-hmm. How are we taking care of these bunch grasses? How are we ensuring that we're sequestering the most carbon possible? And how are we learning that it's it's really important to do that, right? It's really important yeah. to, uh, as a local action against climate chaos. Um, yeah. And so those are also things that we're looking into, right? Everything's interconnected. And so even though we're thinking about drought and water, a lot of these grasses need to be preserved because they retain not only the balance of, of the carbon, but also they hold kind of like our, our mountain and cliff together, right? Those roots hold kind of like all the space together and we can't, we can't let them, you know, disappear. I said that I could probably guess, but so I will guess. Um, this is not something that industrial agriculture does at scale, right? None of these things no. are things that industrial agriculture does. In the- no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask one more thing about water. I've talked on this show with a couple of people about where the city's water comes from now, and it's mostly from Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which is mostly river water, and only a very tiny portion comes from groundwater. And I've talked a couple of times now about recycling water, but I believe that you're piloting some additional alternative water sources. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So we were going to be the pilot site for hydro solar project in which we're going to install apparatus that's going to be capturing water from the air. 
Um, and you know, it's fog and just kind of any, any type of, um, so this is fog harvesting like with nets, it's, it's fog, but it's also just moisture from the air. And then Uh it's going to put it into a cistern under, under that we could use for irrigation. There's going to be, it's a SFPUC, um, model just to test it out and and figure out where to go from there. But we really want to make it an educational tool, right? Have educational signage. And really, you know, work with communities and families to learn more about what are the different things. Because we have an abundance of fog here. <laughs> yes. And so what are the ways in which we could work with what we have, you know, and not just, you know, put an extra drain on that Hetchy water, which travels a long way, which is really dependent on snowfall, you know, mm-hmm. is really dependent on rain. And, 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 you know, if we don't have snowfall, if we don't have rain, then. You know, so and it's, the, it's energy yeah, inefficient, as I learned recently. Right. So what are the ways in which we could um, we could, you know, look into new technologies that aren't harming the environment um, and that are able mm-hmm. to, you know, give us a, a water source to be able to irrigate. So does this require energy to run or is it a passive device? I think it's a passive device. There's no energy, no energy. Involved. Oh, very cool. That's so exciting. I think it's solar, so. <laughs> it is exciting. We're really excited. It's going to be installed this summer. So if you come in the fall, you'll probably be able to check it out. Well, yeah, you just said people might be able to check this out. Is there any way for folks to either learn more about what Poder is doing or help out? You know, there's a lot of young energy at our farm. So the most (laughs) updates are on Instagram at Urban Campesinex on Instagram. And then also if you check out www.podersf, Org, um, we will be having our community work days and um, more information on our Poder website. We do have community work days for all family members. Um, one of our principles is to include all our, you know, intergenerational um, activities for elders, kids, youth, adults. And so we are opening, we've opened them back up to volunteers. And so if you want to bring your family, we're there Sundays. From 10.30 to 2 and Wednesdays from uh, 3.30 to 7. Uh, just give us a call or send us a message at the face on the Instagram or the website. So to, to confirm, just because we we still want to like, you know, keep the numbers in a way in which we all feel safe. We require masks. Totally. We're just excited to have community come and give love to the land and, and work together to steward it together and learn together. <laughs> Dede, thank you so much for talking with me about this. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, excited to to hear more of your podcasts. That was Dere Almaguer, an environmental justice organizer with Poder. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced at KSFPLP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org.